Conquistadors, cowboys, indigenous people. For centuries, mankind has been battling for control over the American Southwest. It's a land filled with wildlife, mysteries, and destruction. Today, the southern border of Arizona is being ripped apart by steel beams, by a barricade 30 feet tall and hundreds of miles long. Today's guest is a leading authority on the impact of a man-made disaster in progress, one that we call the Border Wall. Welcome back to the Get Lost Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sills, freelance writer and explorer. Today's guest is a senior writer and editor at National Geographic. There, he covers wildlife, plant life, and environmental issues. He's also an expert on the ever-changing world of unusual animals like murder hornets, platypuses, and snakeheads. In addition to National Geographic, his work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Scientific American and the Washington Post. His name is Doug Main. Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Joe. It is my pleasure to have you on. Um, I've been a fan of your work for some time, and it just so happens that you have an incredible background that I think our audience will find fascinating. Appreciate that, Joe. I should I should hire you as my uh, hype man. Uh, well, you know, I am from Memphis. We do hype man stuff. <laughs> Good to hear that. It's it's part of the culture. Um, Dude, so before we get into today's episode, which will be in Arizona, I want to ask you about your job, because although I'm sure you're not in the office much these days with the pandemic going on, um, can you tell us what's it like to work like an average day in National Geographic? Sure thing. Yeah, I mean, now it is different than it was before, for sure. We are all working remotely. Um, prior to COVID, uh, the policy was to have pretty much everyone work in DC area. Um, and I have, you know, I have the privilege to be able to, to travel a a decent amount, um, for, to report on various stories. Obviously now traveling is a lot more difficult and most people are just, you know, kind of reporting, reporting from their desks, meaning just calling scientists, doing all that by phone. Um, I did have the, uh, I was able to travel to Florida recently um, to work on a story about Florida Panthers. Um, and I actually drove all the way from DC to Florida, South Florida. Um, and I logged over 3000 miles in the car. That was fun, but it, it was also kind of difficult just to, because you have to be aware of, um, yeah, you know, you have to be safe. You'd be wearing a mask around people that you're interviewing. But anyway, so I, I mean, I feel lucky to have a job and uh, where that I can do remotely. And to be honest, I mean, I can't, I can't complain. But it is, it is different than it used to be. That's for sure. I just, in my mind, I have this uh, vision of the National Geographic offices in D.C., which have like, so much history in, in the world of exploration, like legitimately. And I just imagine like weird animals wandering around and exotic people kind of kicking in the door and like <laughs> pith helmets and stuff. <laughs> Yeah, there is some of that. Um, oftentimes, people are, are coming and going. Uh, we <laughs> we don't have too many odd animals wandering around, but we did have this funny thing where, they, so there's a like a water feature in the courtyard, and mm-hmm. there are um, there are ducks 
uh, a duck couple that that seems to return and and have sometimes have little babies and then there was a, a goose couple and they had goslings and uh but they were they nested on like there, there are these terraces that have um they're, they're like like grass and and uh you know like landscaping um and so they actually nested on the, these terraces that are like raised they're on each level and so the, <laughs> the the goose family was i think on the third level and everyone's really concerned once the uh eggs hatched um you know how are they going to get the babies off and so what happened was um <laughs> some of my colleagues actually like let them into the they let them in through a window and then um it was like this this group that specializes in you know dealing with urban wildlife and so they actually got the babies in a little compartment like a little carrying case and they carried them through the window and the parents followed pretty angry like <laughs> uh honking and we literally like, like aggressive gooses just they were them. yeah they were not happy but anyway uh went into the elevator with the, the goose the, the goose parents obviously followed um into the elevator and then down to the lobby and then out and then let them loose into the uh the, that water feature where they stayed for like a week and then and then uh then they went on their way but anyway so yeah th there are <laughs> there are sometimes uh cool things like that happening are there any like oddities and artifacts kind of laying around? There are, yeah. So there's a whole museum and there are like uh, seasonal exhibits there. And then there are some permanent things in the main, in the building where the magazine is based. And so some of those are artifacts from the society from, you know, years past the society. Like there are the shoes, um, that's, that this explorer wore uh, as he uh, walked more than a thousand miles through Gabon as he was doing the mega transect. That was Mike Fay. Um, and there's like, uh, stuff that Jacques Cousteau had, um, used and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And there's also, um, copies of like pictures of, you know, the cover of the magazine from years past and all kinds of things like that. I just find that to be so fascinating. Um, because I've, I've actually never been there. I've been all over the world and America, but yeah, somehow I've never made time to just go to D.C. and see the things you're supposed to see there. You should come on down, man. We'd be happy to have you when uh, when COVID is over. Uh, yeah, I will be happy to do that. Um, so, Doug, you mentioned the Florida panther, which is a big cat native to, uh, of course, southern Florida. Mm -hmm. And today I want to talk to you about another habitat for big cats that might surprise people, and that is the border region between the United States and Mexico. Um, it's an area that you have some experience in growing up as you had grandparents in Tucson, Arizona. Is that right? That's right. So I grew up in Illinois, but every spring uh, as a kid, I would go to Tucson to see my grandparents. Um, and yeah, I mean, I really fell in love with, with Southern Arizona. So, um, it's a it's a beautiful place. It's kind of hard to describe, so I'll do my best to put it into words. But but I think what's so special about it is that it's a it's just a very diverse area, and it, within a small within a small area, you can there are all these different types of habitats. So in and it's really kind of the collision of all these of these different regions. To the west, you have and and they all kind of collide in, in southeastern Arizona. So you have the Sonoran Desert that's sort of to the west. It's a subtropical desert. Um, and then you have the Sierra Madre Mountains coming up from uh, Mexico. To the north, you have the Rockies. And then to the east, you have the Chihuahuan Desert. Um, and so in this area, you have the what are called the Sky Islands. The Sky Islands are basically um, isolated mountaintop ecosystems. and. Okay. So you have all of these unique areas where like forests atop mountains that aren't that aren't connected anymore. They actually used to be when it was cooler, but now they're separated. And so that has allowed, you know, a lot of endemic species to arise. And so in, in southeastern Arizona, you have in the, in the Sky Island region, you have just incredible biodiversity. I wrote I wrote down some numbers here uh, just to give you just to give you a picture. Um, yeah, hit us with them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, so check this out. In the Sky Island region of Arizona, and it also goes into New Mexico, you have more than uh, 2,000 plant species. 
you have 120 species of amphibians and reptiles, uh, including more than 50 snakes, including a dozen rattlesnakes. And, and um, some of these, many of these things, you know, can be found in southern Arizona and New Mexico and nowhere else because, no, sorry, nowhere else in the U.S. because you get the northern range of these tropical species. Then also for birds, it's, it's one of the best places in the United States for birding. It's probably the best place, I, I should say. You have uh, nearly 500 bird species in southeast Arizona. <clears throat> that is basically like half of, half of the species found in the United States. And in one, uh, one mountain range called the Chiricahuas, um, you have that many. You have 500 bird species. So it's, and I, I didn't even mention mammals. Um, I think there are about, let me check, uh, 200 species of mammals, um, including four types of wildcats. So it really is just, it, it's, it's one of the most biodiverse places in the United States. Um, this is amazing to me because I sort of picture southern Arizona in my mind and Tucson, and I'm like, yeah, cactus and tumbleweeds <laughs> and like dude ranch vibes. Right. I'm not picturing, you know, a, a, like a, a Zelda game where you were in like a little boat, Wind Waker, and you're going to like island after island after island, and every island, although these are on land, has its own ecosystem and almost, almost its own like ecological culture, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, that's absolutely true. I, yes, you, I mean you you said it very well. So um, every mountain range has its own flavor, its own mixture of plants and animals. Um, of course, there are many that many animals that you know range between them, but the Chiricahuas has its own thing going on. It's extremely diverse, and then to the west you have. The Huachucas, and that that is a mountain range that straddles the border. Um, then you have the Santa Ritas, the Santa Catalinas. Um, so there, every every place has a different flavor. And and the desert, the desert, I know can bring up this um, picture of of being somewhat desolate, but it really isn't. I mean, even in the the driest parts, the Sonoran Desert, you know, some places get eight inches of rain or less a year, but you have these towering. Um, just absolutely magnificent plants called saguaro cactus, the, the saguaro cactus. Um, and there are some other uh, pretty amazing species such as the Oregon vibe cactus. But to, to linger on the saguaro for a second, these things, you know, get several stories high. They, they live hundreds of years. Um, the Tohono O'odham people re regard them similar to the, similar to the way they regard people in terms of, you know, how important they are and how much respect they give them. They provide a lot of, they, you know, they provide food for the autumn, including berries, and um, they use the dead swarf to, to make tools. And so it's, it's not just a, it's not just a desolate desert. It's, there's very, it's very, uh, despite, you know, not getting much rain in some areas and, and, and whatnot, it is still a very vibrant, uh, very alive place. So as a kid in Illinois, when you go out to see your grandparents, you're just, I mean, I feel like Illinois is, is a lot like Tennessee. It's green, there's, you know, hardwood forests, there's grassland, and then you're just transported to this immensely different place. What was that like to experience when you were young? It was incredible. You know, I think I, I fell in love with it before I had words. I mean, literally. So it, it, it's hard to describe it, but something about it just always suited me, um, there's also a lot of cool history there that, um, well, some of it's quite tragic, but the, uh, history that is, you know, appealing to to a young boy, you know, growing up, like hearing about, and I'm sure it would be appealing to young girls too as well, but I'm just saying as a boy, you know, hearing about like some of the Wild West type stuff that happened there and we would go, we would visit Tombstone, uh, which is in Southeast Arizona and all these old, you know, old mining towns, old ghost towns. Um, I would say it's 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 a great it's it's a great place to to grow up. Well, I mean, I didn't I didn't grow up there full time, but it, I think it, you know kids like naturally, especially if they have family members that are into nature and wild places, um, you know, they just sort of naturally gravitate to that. And my grandparents had this place um, behind next to a, a wash um, and like a you know a seasonal wash that would only get 
it, it would only have water in the uh, monsoon season late summer which i never actually saw because i was usually just there in the spring but so it's, it's like kind of like a dry creek bed most of the year. exactly yeah but that was just really fun to to explore as a kid you know going up and down like the hills and just seeing just seeing all the different weird cactuses and um, plants that i wasn't used to seeing back in the midwest and uh, are there moments that stick out in your mind um as as you grow up and you spend time around your grandparents home uh, was there a moment that you actually got out really into the wild land around there and thought this place is is special yeah you know so saguaro national park is a very special place to me um my grandparents' place was towards the east side of Tucson, so we would often go to Saguaro National Park East. It's like kind of divided on either side of Tucson. And there's a particular place, um, Sabino Canyon and uh, Bear Canyon. Um, just exploring those with uh, my parents and grandparents, especially my dad and sister and grandfather. Um, just That actually is a a year-round stream for the most part because it, it's fed by um by uh you know snow melt and stuff in the catalinas um there's just something very special about exploring like a stream in the middle of i mean it, it, it is a desert you know and but just that bringing together of like the vibrancy of uh uh the other life around a stream in, in, in a desert and um you know beautiful landscaping where you're walking into this mountain range and there's boulders and it's it's i I have very fond memories of of that area in particular take us on a road trip from your grandparents house um, out to these canyons and tell us what you see as a kid sure yeah i mean it was (laughs) it was actually pretty close but um i think one of the as i alluded to earlier one of the the defining features of of the sonoran um the sonoran landscape are the saguaros and there are these tree-like cactuses you know there's really nothing quite like them and so i always there's something about them that i always just loved and they really they they just make they make the landscape quite beautiful um and so you're you're driving through the kind of rolling hills um the the foothills of the catalinas um and then you you get closer and you're going you're going uphill and and the leaving behind some of the houses Tucson is very spread out it's kind of it's kind of sprawled out um but then yeah you get in you get in there into the into the canyon and all you know all signs of civilization go away um and it's pretty cool you know there's also this this place at Bear Canyon where at least it used to be you could park and then there was a shuttle that would take you out like kind of deeper into the canyon Mm -hmm. and uh (laughs) my dad and I and sister uh, we kind of known for like not taking our time. Um, and, uh, we would always be sort of, we, I, I literally remember one time running back and my 80 year old grandfather was, was running behind us. Cause we had to get back to, uh, meet the, the shuttle in time <laughs> because if you miss the shuttle, then it's like another extra three miles back to the parking lot. But anyway, um, it's, it's a it's a really beautiful place so so you're like oh we've got to get back and your granddad who's 80 years old is like yeah we really do because i don't want to run these th- three other miles yeah i mean i it's in retrospect i think we probably should have planned better but uh you know he he seemed to handle it pretty well what's shocking to me about some of your articles that i've read about uh, the area recently is like you said, instead of just this dusty dude ranch tombstone vibe, it's it's this beautiful, lush landscape, especially in the wet season. Um, and it's a landscape that is a UNESCO biosphere, a lot of it. Um, a lot of it is protected national monument area. And yet, right now, that area is ensconced in tragedy to a degree. That's, that's absolutely right, Joe. And I feel like... Um... It has not been covered enough. Um, so what's happening right now is that, and a lot of it already has happened, is you know building of a border wall through these wilderness areas. Um, and uh, just to give you some numbers, so now there are more than 280 miles of border wall along the southern, uh, along Arizona's southern border. That's uh, about three fourths of the entire border. Um, 
and two, more than 200 miles of these are new. Um, and so, uh, to, to make it clear, so most, most, of these, most of this fencing is about 30 feet tall. Um, and while most of them are, re most of them are replacing uh, wall, I think people often misunderstand what that means. They're, they're replacing short fences like barbed wire fencing and uh, Normandy-style bar vehicle barriers that are a few feet tall. So um, if, you've, if you can imagine uh, an old World War II footage of Normandy, those big metal X's that were all over the beach. Kind of like that, yeah, yeah. Looks something like that? Right, right. And so I don't think, just, it, you know, it, it, I don't think people realize what's going on. And, and this has all happened. Almost all of this has happened in the last, literally since March. So more than 200 miles of 30 feet fence have, are now uh, on the southern border of Arizona and, and that weren't there before. And these are in wilderness areas. This is an Oregon pipe cactus. Um, this is in um, Cabeza Prieta. Uh, this is in uh, the, Cor the Coronado National Forest, um, the wilderness areas that where most people, you know, don't go and, and don't know a lot about, and also don't have a lot of people to speak up for, you know, to, to to say what's going on. I think if this was happening in a place that saw more visitors, um, it would be. I think there would be more knowledge and probably outrage about it. Certainly, there are a lot of people speaking out, environmentalists. Um, and almost more importantly, you know, tribal folks, um, the, the Atham, you know, the, some of this wall is going through Atham land, um, not the actual technical reservation, but land that, you know, historic homelands for, for the tribe. Um, and they have, you know, spoken out about this and been pretty outraged by what they see as desecration to their land. For example, um, there's a place called Monument Hill in Oregon Pipe uh, that Customs and Border Protection dynamited, you know, uh, a line through to build the wall, and that was deeply upsetting to the Atham because, um, you know, that's there are there are historic grave sites there, and it's just a place they consider sacred. So, um, yeah. So you have people that live there. You have the Atham who have been making some headlines for standing up and trying to protect this wall, and. Um, most people are probably familiar, I mean, even if you're trying to avoid it, you can see images of the border wall uh, because it's really striking, this 30-foot tall fence of steel pylons that looks straight out of Mordor. I mean, it, it's like, what the hell are, it is like some sci-fi looking stuff, and it's, it's so far enough steel uh, to build numerous Empire State Buildings has been used, and it's literally going through this ecosystem where not only the Atom live, but it's going through the the Sky Islands area, the area where all of these mountains have their own individual unique ecosystems, where there's you know hundreds of mammals, there's thousands of animals in general, there's just so much going on, as you said, and yet we're over here blasting holes in it. I mean, gigantic scathing scars. Um, what does it look like when they build this wall? You said they blasted, but I mean, describe that to us. Sure. So, um, yeah, you alluded to a couple of things there that are worth uh, following up on. So, the, I mentioned, you know, the impact to the, uh, the the indigenous people who have lived there for much longer than. United States ever existed, and that is something that I, you know, I think is, is really important for people to realize. And uh, I, I think even in today's environment where, you know, minorities are getting more respect um, than they used to, I, I think that Indigenous people still, just, I just feel like they don't get enough attention. That you know, it's there's not there's not like a broad awareness of the, of some of the things that are happening. I, I'm probably saying that kind of awkwardly, but it is kind of close to my heart because um, this is happening in, in their homelands. Oftentimes, um, in especially in mountainous areas, they have to, yeah, they have to blast a path through um, to make it more even, you know, to, to lower the grade, and that often involves putting in literal dynamite. Um, 
bef you know, before, th then you're laying a track of cement and, you, and then you're putting the steel in it. Um, so th that's what it looks like. In terms of the impact on animals, um, that's, that's, that's one of the most obvious and, and huge impacts that I think is also under-recognized. I mean, these mountain, these mountain areas in the Sky Islands, the, the mountainous areas serve as basically like you know, pathways for many animals to get around. Uh, for example, you know, mountain lions, you got deer, black bear, bighorn sheep, you know, all, there are all kinds of species that, that have to move around just because that's part of their natural biology. But also, you know, you have gene flow between Mexico and the United States. Obviously those are, I mean, it's, it's all the same. It's, it, there's an artificial boundary that we've put there, but you know, they need to move around just to live their lives and to be a, one connected population. So when you put the wall in there, you're cutting off this flow that's vital to preserve their populations. And so people worry, biologists worry this is going to cause local extinctions for certain species. Um, you're also going to prevent, one of the cool things about southern Arizona, like I said, is you get tropical species there that you don't see in many other places in the U.S. I mean, the only other place Okay, so like jaguars, you, you, they are, there's a history of jaguars in Arizona, and in the last like 25 years, we spotted about half a dozen. Um, there was one that lived in the Santa Rita Mountains, uh, known affectionately as El Jefe, uh, lived there for about four or five years. The Santa Ritas are, you know, like 25 miles from downtown Tucson. When you say live there, um, is was this a long time ago? Has El Jefe left? Or? El, El Jefe has left, but um, no, it was uh, from roughly 2011 to 2015. There was a male jaguar living full time in the Santa Rita Mountains, and so that is just that's very cool. That's one of the other cool things about the area. But now that you have um, some of this fencing going up, you know that prevents that prevents jaguars from. Uh, I mean, it's just one species, but an important species that moves back and forth and there are actually many miles of critical habitat for jaguars in the u.s that the wall is now blocking uh, so it's kind of kind of going back to your florida panther connection um big cats obviously are hugely captivating i mean there's for christ's sake there's an nfl team named the jaguars and forever and ever i thought well, jaguar you know that has nothing to do with the united states that's a central american thing and, and way down in the rainforest if that and now we're saying, hey, actually, there is a population of jaguar in the United States, and what we're doing now to them uh, is going to prevent them from being biologically diverse if they're here anymore. Uh, it's probably going to prevent their population from growing, and it may just completely eliminate them from the country. Am I taking that a step too far? Um, yeah, just uh, let me just clarify that. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, southern Arizona is, is the far northern range of the jaguar. Um, and the, all the animals seen in the past uh, few decades were all males. Males tend to, like, like with, with, most, with most cats, including mountain lions, the males tend to range over much wider areas. And, you know, they're looking for new habitat, they're, and they're also looking for females. Um, mm -hmm. But if they can't find any, obviously, you know, we can, there's not going to be a a uh, breeding population. So the nearest breeding population that we know of is in uh, northern Sonora, Mexico. It's certainly possible uh, and likely if the animals are protected that they will um, reclaim territory to the north including southern Arizona. You know back in, I mean until as recently as the 1960s um, there were uh, I believe the last female known uh, female jaguar in Arizona was, was shot in the 1960s. Um, but the point is, um, this will, if the wall is completed over all of these corridors in southeast Arizona, um, it, it'll prevent, you know, jaguars from coming back. I think the, the jaguar is, a, is definitely an important animal to, to mention, and it, it captures people's imagination. But I want to be clear that I think the bigger, the bigger threat and which is probably you know already happening is the is impacting the movement of more common animals like mountain lions and deer and bear you know i spoke to a biologist um, who works in the san bernardino national wildlife refuge uh this is a really special place 
uh, it's it's a it's a rare wetland in the middle of the desert um, in, in southeast Arizona. Oh wow, really? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And they have several species of endangered fish that live there, um, but also there are mountain lions there. And so um, this biologist Miles Traphagen, um, he set up cameras, you know, around on the northern side of the border, and he actually as collaborating with another group that has done the same in Mexico. But anyway, he's already seen an impact of the wall, which just went up across the wildlife refuge uh, in the past few months. Um, he's already seen impacts on movement of animals. Like, for example, he's seen fewer javelina in the refuge, and he's seen um, basically like mountain lions used to be moving equal, almost equally back and forth, going one way and then the other, but now he sees them only going one way, which kind of suggests to him that they are, they're trying to get, they're trying to go across the, uh, the wall, but then, you know, turning around and going a different direction. So it, it seems to probably already be interfering with, you know, some of their ability to, to hunt and, and to move about as they would, would choose to. So when you talk about a javelina, that's, um, can you describe that for somebody who's never seen one? Sort of like <laughs> sure. a, a pig, kind of? Yeah, so, yeah, Google javelina. They're, they're pretty cool-looking animals. They are, um, they're related to pigs, but they are, they're, not, they're not quite pigs. Um, they're, they're related to peccaries, which is a, a South American pig-like animal. They, but, yeah, they look like pigs. They, they're, fur, they're hairy. Um, there was this viral video of one running through Tucson that's also worth Googling. Um, yeah, they're quite. I don't know. Something about them is is uh, is, is quite uh, charismatic, I would say. But they're yeah, they're sort of adorable. I mean, I've I've seen them on T-shirts and stuff, and they're they've sort of become one of these iconic species that is now uh, gaining a little traction as a representative of the border region. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's due. Um, they they are quite charismatic. Although in some places, you know, they're sort of. Um, they, they, they kind of they can exist on the like amongst the suburbs and some people get annoyed with them because they will you know eat like kind of mess around in the landscaping and actually my parents my parents have a place in Tucson and they'll wander down the road eating uh, eating acorns and that kind of stuff but I mean I like them a lot I, I think they're uh, I'm pro peccary I'm pro I'm pro javelina pro javelina you know <laughs> this this show Doug is is not by nature a, a political show we don't have political discourse on here usually not because i'm afraid of it but just in the general course of adventure you sort of get lost in in other details right sure uh, but the reality is that politics affects exploration it affects daily life it affects uh, the habitat and the biology of the places we want to go see it affects tourism for instance uh, i can't go anywhere except like armenia or the caribbean right now um just because the U.S. passport itself is uh, not so useful in a pandemic, turns out. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think it's important, even though we're not political, is it's important to highlight who they are. When we talk about they're building the border wall, you know, they're blasting. What government agency or what organizations are involved in building this wall? Sure. So... Customs and Border Patrol is um, part of the Department of Homeland Security, um, and they are sort of they are coordinating and, and running the show on this. Um, obviously, they're in charge of, of border security, um, and, and it includes customs. And but the people actually building are usually contractors, um, mm -hmm. and they they have gotten these these large contracts from. Uh, DHS, Department of Homeland Security, uh, often in the billions of dollars. And um, th so when I say they, yeah, I didn't mean to be like uh, vague or anything, but I'm usually, I guess I'm talking about the people actually building the wall, which is, you know, the, the contractors overseen by Customs and Border Protection. Um, and I appreciate what you said about politics. You know, this is, <clears throat> I'm obviously a journalist and it's of the utmost importance for me, up utmost important importance for me to be fair to uh to be you know to not be biased um but when it comes to border wall it, it's one of those things where i i don't really see it as a i mean so obviously president trump has made it a political thing he, he made it a big part of his um campaign um right, right. and 
But I don't, you know, I, I mean, I'm not a very political guy. I'm, I'm, I truly am a moderate. Um, I'm not a member of any party. I, and, and but so I feel like I, I need to say that um, when I, I, I see it as just a matter of, of being fair and um, speaking for the facts and the truth. And I'm not against having, um, uh, I, 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 hopefully this is not a controversial statement. I, I think it's, I think it makes sense to have wall in some areas. There already was a lot of wall before the Trump administration. Um, okay. And especially in, you know, urban areas, um, uh, Nogales, the, the direct vicinity of Nogales comes to mind as a place where people have made arguments, you know, why it makes sense. So I'm not, I, I wouldn't say I'm against <laughs> all wall or having a secure border certainly uh, that that is not an accurate way to frame my position but what I am what I think uh, doesn't make a lot of sense is building you know um, walls in the middle of the wilderness where there really is not a problem in terms of um, illegal immigration and as and as everyone agrees you know most of the legal immigration and, and drug trafficking happens is through legal ports of entry um, and the, that is a good point. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. Yeah. Yes. So, so, and, and so, the, and there are many, you know, many people that have 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 made these kind of arguments. I mean, uh, the Inspector General for uh, DHS actually issued a pretty scathing critique of where they're building the wall, and I believe this was in a, a statement this summer. Um, and you know, there are people like Janet Napolitano, former governor of Arizona former head of DHS, um, who is against pretty much all of the new wall that they're building. And this is this is a smart person. I mean, she's a Democrat, but she, she knows what she's talking about, having, having you know, been in the, thing, the position she's had. And so, it, like I said, it, it's, it just seems like these walls don't make sense. And I, I have to, I feel like one has to point out, you know, the reality of what's happening, the impact on the environment, um, the impact on uh, impacts on indigenous people and the thing is you know a lot of these impacts we don't know what they're going to be because this is another thing that also has to be pointed out I don't think most people realize so due to a 2005 law um, the Real ID Act uh, that gives the head of DHS the ability to waive pretty much any law in the in the uh, process of building the wall so for most of these sections of the wall in Arizona, or pretty much all of them, um, there are many laws that have been waived. So like the- Okay, yeah, break that down. Cause sure. I wanted to know how, I mean, how are, is DHS able to circumvent uh, the National Park Service Department of Interior? How are they able to, to cut through a UNESCO biosphere reserve? I mean, what kind of protections are being thrown out the door here in favor of uh, this weird, like, you know, Jon Snow with a sombrero visual that the White House has going on. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a funny image. Um, yeah. So, right. Uh, the Real ID Act gives the head of Department of Homeland Security the legal right to waive any law. And um, th these include laws like the Endangered Species Act, um, NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, um, Clean Water Act, uh, various laws protecting Native American sites, uh, including Native American grave sites. Um, all kinds of laws have been waived um, to build the wall through these areas. So, so they're able to literally just go in and say, it doesn't matter that there's a grave here or a well here or a spring or a habitat. I, I, I want to say, I, I don't want to come out too, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm being too harsh on uh, customs and border protection. They do consult with. Um, they do consult with with many agencies. You know, they they in in assessing environmental damage. They um, are consulting with the National Park Service, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, that kind of thing. A lot of those details, you know, are I'm just not privy to. I mean, I obviously I speak to them, and they they always say that they're coordinating with these other groups, and I, I'm sure that's true. But there is a lot of frustration on the ground from um, pretty much all parties I've talked to in terms of, you know, wishing that they had more of a say in, in determining what uh, Customs and Border Protection allow to happen. Um, I mean, I, I think that's not a controversial thing to say. But, you know, they, they are consulting and they are, there is a certain amount of communication. But 
I have to be honest when I, you know, I say there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of outrage about what's happening. And, and it's, I, I don't think any reasonable person would say, oh, sure, you know, there's no problems, uh, you know, <laughs> or anything like that. Um, yeah. So with this, this wall, um, I mean, there's outrage, it sounds like, among the government agencies are sort of saying, hey, you're stepping on our toes. And, uh, you know, that's, this isn't exactly what what needs to happen here and people are frustrated and um, contractors are in a pretty good spot I guess they're getting paid they're getting work and that's hard to come by in a pandemic so I can't fault them for doing their jobs at all um, but I do think you're right there we need to highlight the environmental impact and the cultural impact of this um, something I wanted to ask you about is the effect of this wall not just as a barrier to migrating animals, but also as a source of, of light pollution. How does that affect the animals and even the people that live around there? Right, uh, light pollution is a major concern. Um, a lot of animals, I mean, it's a very biodiverse area and a lot of animals uh, are impacted by lights in the middle of the wilderness, um, including just about any species of flying insect you can think of, you know, they're gonna be attracted to lights and often die uh, when they get too close and entrained on those lights. Um, I've actually been in um, Southern Arizona with some friends that are entomologists and it's a, it's actually a, you know, because it's so diverse, it's a, it's a popular place to go light trapping. So, so entomologists, okay. entomologists, it's, it's sort of an aside, but just to explain, um, lights are so attractive to these animals that, you know, you can go out into the woods, shine a light on a sheet, you know, just one small point of light. And you'll get hundred thousands of amazing insects, all kinds of moths, beetles. They're they're beautiful, like uh, jewel beetles, scarab beetles, all kinds of um, moths and flies. And um, actually, my uh, my friend Larry Reeves, uh, a researcher uh, in Florida, he uh, goes to, to Arizona a lot, and he actually discovered a new a new species of moth um, when I was with him in 2015 in. Um, sort of the uh, Coronado National Forest area west of Nogales. Um, but anyway, the point and, is... And what, when he did that, was he just shining a light on a sheet and here's, here's an amazing moth that nobody documented before? Yeah, I mean, he was doing it for fun, but also in a scientific way and collecting some of the, the specimens and, and whatnot. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. So, you, hey, you're like a sidekick on an actual scientific <laughs> discovery. Yeah, that was fun. That was cool. Um, that's great, man. I've never done that. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um yeah, and so, but the, the point in bringing that up is, well, I guess to highlight again, you know, how biodiverse this area is, and they're actually, I didn't mention earlier, but um, there are 150,000 known invertebrate species um, in the Arizona Sky Islands, which is pretty mind-blowing if you think about it. But, so that's one light, right? If you have an entire wall uh, of fence, uh, you know, illuminated, um, as, as is true already in some areas, like in the boot hill of New Mexico, just imagine the impact that has on the wildlife. Um, it's 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 going to be considerable. And in some areas, like the fencing near San Bernardino National Wildlife Refuge, I'm told, um, are, has lights installed that haven't been turned on yet. So, you know, there's there's more lights coming. All right, Doug. So not only are you like part of this incredible pseudo I mean, it's actually a scientific discovery. You helped a friend discover a moth. It's new to science, so therefore... That counts, but did you have any other experiences at night out in the border? Absolutely. So, so one time I was with uh, some of those same friends um, in this place called California Gulch. It is uh, in the Coronado National uh, Forest, kind of the west of uh, the Pajarita Mountains, mm -hmm. and it's this is this beautiful area that is kind of an important riparian area. Uh, for for animals and we were probably about three miles from the border. We were light trapping late at night um, Drinking some beers watching weird insects come in uh, and this guy drives up in a, in a truck um, And to kind of see what we were doing Apparently we were allegedly like on his family's land, although I'm pretty sure we, we were on public land Anyway, he was just kind of checking us out. We talked to him for a while, um, he showed us uh, this his big this huge gun that he had an AR-15 that he had like made himself, um, 
and he he confessed to us that he was uh well i'm not sure exactly what words he used but in other, basically he was a, a vigilante like um he was one of these people who who drive around um you know with no law enforcement uh background or, or training that i know of but these people drive around like trying to i guess i don't know catch catch illegal immigrants or uh you know take take yeah take th- this is a real thing um so this guy in a truck comes up to you with a uh an assault rifle and he's like hey dude drinking beer and catching bugs are you illegal immigrants <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think you could tell from looking at us that that we weren't. But um, he was he was just kind of making it clear that, that you know he, he lived nearby and he was scoping us out. And um, one of my friends had had bad experiences with um, with uh, vigilantes um, before. Um, and so after this, okay, who are you hanging out with, man? Because I don't know anybody <laughs> that personally has met a single vigilante. Well, other than you. <laughs> yeah. So. It's actually my friend Aaron Chambers. He's a he's a biologist um, in the Tucson area. I think it's okay to use his name. Um, and he had well, actually, I'm sure it is because I mentioned this in a in a Newsweek story I wrote about it. But um, he he's a he's a biologist. Spends a lot of time out in you know just in the wilderness. And and he had he had run into these people before, including one time where a bunch of vigilantes actually drew guns on him, um, assuming that he was I don't know a, a, a migrant. Um, so he has kind of a dim view of, of these people that take the law into their own hands. And so after, back to California Gulch, after um, this fellow left, um, <laughs> we were uh, continuing to you know, hang out there and talk and probably kind of loudly, um, um, not necessarily being, uh, being um, I, I, I think it's possible that, that this, this guy like, like, uh, was, was actually kind of lingering uh, nearby and heard us because shortly thereafter, um, pretty close by, we heard gunshots. Um, and you know, of course, we didn't know. Uh, this is we we kind of recreated what might have happened afterwards. That seems to be the most likely story. But all that we knew was we saw this guy. He left, and then maybe an hour later, um, we heard gunshots, and, and that really scared us. And um, we didn't know if they were at us or just up in the air. But so we like dove to the ground, got like turned off the light, um, just got out of there as quickly as possible. It was, it was pretty scary. I mean, it's also possible that it was um, someone, you know, uh, a smuggler or someone coming north from the border um, and just trying to get, a, to get us to move because we were in their way. But it seems most likely that we had, uh, we had upset this, this vigilante. That's wild, dude. Yeah. I don't... <laughs> it was pretty scary. All right, so aside from interrupting all of the light-trapping entomologists out there, what are some other impacts of the wall right now? Another, another impact that I didn't mention that I think is most people don't realize is, is how much water uh, border, border wall construction takes. So right, explain that because you're not talking about just people drinking water while they're working. Right. No, no. So the base of the fence is made of, you know, cement, concrete, um, and that takes a lot of water. But there's also water used um, literally just being sprayed on, you know, it, to reduce dust. And um, one story. In the desert. They're just spraying water on the ground in the de- to reduce dust. Yeah, sometimes it's on the, it's on the roads or it's in the air. Um, but yeah, it is. It doesn't seem like the most like the smartest use of, of water. Um, and this is you know these this water is coming from aquifers in the middle of the desert that are oftentimes low. Um, they are contain water that has taken hundreds of years to get there. Um, so I wrote the story for Na- for National Geographic about um, this spring in Oregon Pipe called. Uh, Quito Bikito Springs, and it's home to two endangered species, the Sonoida pupfish and the Sonoran mud turtle. It's also a sacred uh, spot for the Hyachet Atum. Okay. Tell us about the the fish and the turtle. What do they look like? What do they do? Yeah, so uh, the fish, uh, it's kind of a colorful little fish. Um, The mud turtle is, (laughs) it's it's kind of like a platonic ideal of a turtle. It's like uh, hangs around in the water, swims around. and this this spring, uh, which is located like less than a quarter mile from just north of the of the border, um, is the only, is pretty much the last stronghold for both species. Um, and uh, 
but I, I kind of got sidetracked there. The point was that, so yeah, it uses a lot of water. Um, this spring, um, also the flow for the spring has been going down for a while. Um, and I actually calculated this. So the Customs and Border Protection didn't want to, didn't say, um, well, they claim to not estimate how much water they use per, per mile of, of wall. But I found some old numbers suggesting that uh, one mile of, of wall took up to 710,000 gallons uh, for a fence, for a bit of fence near Lukeville. So not, not far from Oregon Pipe. So that's a lot of water, obviously, 700,000 gallons. Um, by my calculations, basically that is 20 years of, 20 years of household water use for an average American. Uh, that's unreal. Yeah, that, that is unreal. That amount of water could fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool, um, uh, or it could uh, provide enough water for you to shower nonstop for seven, eight months. Um, and so that's how much it takes to build one wall, one mile of wall. Um, well, that's one way to pass the pandemic. I have to admit. <laughs> yeah. Right. Just showering constantly. Just you'd be the cleanest person. Just so too. clean, so germ-free. Yeah. <laughs> um. This is incredible. So I guess I didn't realize the scale of this, Doug. The, they're using 700,000 gallons per mile. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that, that was for one section of the wall that is probably not too dissimilar from, from others. It, it's, it's, it, it could, so it could give or take. You know? Yeah, give or take a little bit. And that, that fencing was uh, slightly shorter than most of the new fencing. So it, it's possible it could be even more. It's really hard to say because... Uh, there's this, they're, they're not, um, they haven't shared all of those details with the public. Right. So are they obligated to do that? No, they're not. And that, that's something I kind of started to say earlier is that some of these impacts, we really don't know what they're going to be because, um, since the, since they don't have, since they can waive, um, these various laws, these various laws would normally require so much, so much research and, um, and work to, to kind of try and understand what is happening you know what i mean like normally if you build i mean can you imagine like if you if you're in a normal situation you're building a fence through a wilderness area and you know a protected area you'd have to worry about all these things impacts on endangered species impacts on the water and the runoff and um while they say they are uh coordinating with federal agencies etc to to reduce the impact you know they're not they're not actually required to do much and so we don't know. There's a lot of baseline data we don't have. And so, I mean, what, what are the impacts going to be? We don't even know um, in, in many cases. All right, Doug. So I have to ask you, we've talked a lot about the wall, how it's built, how much it costs, what kind of resources it uses. haven't really asked you if it works, although I have seen a video of a guy just walking right through it this week. Right. Right. So the wall is not really designed to... Uh, absolutely prevent people i mean maybe that that the claims would maybe some people would claim that but really the idea of a wall is always to to um slow people down or to uh you know try and dis discourage them from coming across i don't think anyone would dispute that you know a uh, a 30-foot ladder would be able to get you across the 30-foot wall or you know ropes and you know that kind of thing or, or even, you know, I mean, there are all kinds of things people have used. There are tunnels. There are... You could use like a skateboard, right? A grappling hook and a skateboard and just kind of go up the side of it, one of those beams. There, there, there are many ways to get over it, yeah. But um, I guess the point is that so these, these walls are in are – the new a lot of the new wall is in wilderness areas that didn't have high rates of illegal activity. Um, and, and even if they – even in areas where there, are, there is some illegal activity – I need to stress that it's not like um, Customs and Border Protection doesn't have a presence there. You know, they have they have lots of cameras, um, uh, sensors that detect movement. They, if you go anywhere near the border in Arizona, uh, you know, you're kind of eventually soon see Border Patrol driving around. There are a lot of checkpoints. Um, just as an example, uh, with, with my friends going to this place, this this uh, kind of watering hole uh, near the Pajarita wilderness uh mm -hmm. they, and it, it's just a it's a popular place for some people well i don't know if it's that popular it, whatever it's a place my friends know that it's really fun to swim in it's actually deep mm -hmm. enough that you can jump off boulders and it's really fun and so we went down there making a bunch of noise jumping in the water this is probably not that far from the border um 
anyway, on the way back, uh, walk, I mean, it's, it's several miles to hike in there on the way back. There were two border patrol guys just kind of chilling there and kind of laughing. Like, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I think we asked them, so like, how'd you, uh, like what, what brought you here? They're like, yeah, you're making tons of noise. Like we could hear you from miles away. So the point is, you know, that border patrol has a, has a very, uh, thorough presence and it's not like, um, there's, it's not like a wall is absolutely necessary to stop people. Um, they're also, they're also even like in, in some places like the Huachucas, there's a, at least there was a, a, a blimp permanently, um, anchored and just hovering over with cameras, you know, to be able to see stuff that's Sorry, going. That's like super bizarre visual. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a good year blimp. Just pretty much, pretty much. It's an anchored, it's an anchored blimp that just hangs out there, uh, observing people and they are listening posts and towers, in the uh, Tohono O'odham Nation, um, and some of them are actually being built now, uh, and that that is a, that is another thing that is worth mentioning. The the O'odham feel many of them, you know, feel like they are under surveillance, um, just living their lives, and you know uh, that is that's certainly not not something you want to have to deal with constantly. But there is a big presence there aside from the wall, and I just wanted to, to point that out. Yeah, thanks. I mean, they may have a point. I mean, you're just swimming, and these guys say they can hear you miles away. How? <laughs> they didn't say they could hear you with their ears. I mean, exactly. No, they, they certainly, yeah, that they, they were certainly, almost certainly, um, I don't know, microphones, cameras, uh, motion detectors, all kinds of stuff like that. And, we, you know, we don't even, obviously we don't know all those details, but we know that those things exist. I personally think they have microphones on the desert tortoises. <laughs> Could it could be it could be Joe? All right. So Doug, as we kind of wrap up here on this border wall topic, what what's the future outlook of this? The wall's not yet done. There is uh, probably an incoming administration change. I feel pretty good about that. Um, what's what's going to happen? Has the Biden team? issued any kind of statement on the wall? Do they talk about it at all? Or is it sort of a, a Donald Trump production? Right. So Biden, who will be our next president, um, has said that he will immediately halt for uh, construction of the border wall. Um, and that is, you know, for, for people that care about, um, you know, where our money is going, I think that for all the other reasons, I, I also wanted to say I think it's it's important to point out how much the wall costs. Um, you know, th there have been fifteen billion dollars secured to fund it. Um, a pro my research suggests we've used about well, well we I, about eight billion of that has been spent. Um, and just as as a quick, uh, just to put fifteen billion in perspective, in in a story I wrote recently, I I, I uh, calculated that would be enough to build and launch uh, three Hubble Space Telescopes. That would be enough to build the Panama Canal twice. Um, that would also be enough to pay the salary uh, of every high school teacher in every border state for one year. Anyway, the point wow. is, the point is um, Biden has said that he will halt construction. Um, I think that it is, th th there are probably some details that, that will be harder. Um, it might be harder to stop than, than, than we might think, or, or there might be, uh, s some difficulties associated with that because uh, there's a there's a good story in ProPublica about this. Like, so if you cancel contracts, sometimes you have to pay, um, you know, pay uh, cancellation, cancellation fee. fees, and so yeah. it's possible that so certain areas might have to be construction might have to be wrapped up in certain areas. Um, but yes, Biden said he'll stop it. In terms of other mediation, I think it's too early to say, but people have s certainly started thinking about you know how to best remediate. Um, ideas include tearing down certain parts of the wall or, or you know, leaving large gaps like uh, that animals could go through. Um, but that, it's, a, it's kind of early to say. Uh, it's, it's more just speculation and, and things people have thought of. But, but, uh, right, because they have cut like some holes in the wall for animals, but they're, they're quite small, as I understand. Yes. So, so far, there are, I mean, I, I wrote another story about, that, you know, they're going to be 50 small passages in the Arizona border wall. And when I say small, I mean small. They're the width and height of a piece of printer paper, eight and a half by 11 inches. Um, but what, for real remediation for large animals like, uh, you know, like jaguars or bears or mountain lions would, would have to be something a lot more 
um, considerable than that. And so some, some people have talked about, you know, theorized that it would be good to have like actual, you know, sections without any wall. Um, and because there, there are other things associated with the wall that, that probably um, make animals not want to come near like the lights or the, the cars going back and forth. So, but it, a lot of it remains to be seen. Jeez, it's just a huge unknown. And it, it's something that I'm so glad you were able to come on the show and, and shine a light on because the reporting has been excellent on this. Uh, I agree with you. It needs more of a spotlight. But if you want to follow along with this, I'm sure Doug will be the man on top of it uh, on Twitter, Douglas Main. Uh, sorry, Douglas underscore Main. Don't forget the underscore, man. <laughs> it's critical. <laughs> Um, do you plan to keep covering this? What's the strategy here? Yes, sir. It definitely will. Um, I, I've covered as much as I can convince my editors to let me cover it so far. And uh, looking forward, I, I certainly will. I think, sir, like I said, many things remain unknown about how it could be mitigated or what the future holds. So I, I'm, I'm going to keep covering it. Cool. Well, thank you, Doug. I appreciate you coming on. Get Lost Podcast is a production of Sold Outside Exploration Company. Follow us on Instagram at Get Lost Podcast. Be sure to give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. That'll help us crank out more episodes.